0: jerry and tracy Polly,
1: and their dog ninja hey guys welcome to episode 206 of hippoly horror stories i'm jerry and i'm tracy this week we're actually on vacation or just should be coming back from vacation but we have decided that on this particular episode we are going to go way back into the vault and give you one of our very best patreon episodes as a matter of fact it was our very first one so this one most people haven't heard even people who are patreon didn't go back because as i looked it didn't even have a name on it it just said june patreon bonus mm-hmm. so i had to look, click on it to even find out what it was so some people probably didn't click on it because they didn't know what it was anyways this is a really good setup. So what this is, at the beginning, you're going to get a couple of paranormal stories, one of which is on the Wabasha Street Caves up in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. This place is awesome. It's got uh, like some gangster true crime and hauntings and stuff in it and they just recently closed those things down for COVID and I don't know if they're going to completely open up again they were talking about maybe not opening up again after COVID mm. so hopefully that's not the case but not. then we end the episode at least on the Patreon episode with some true crime this is the story of the chicken coop murders that <laughs> happened back in the early part of the century but this was the I guess the basis for the movie Changeling. which I think had Angelina Jolie. Not to be confused with The Changeling, which had uh, George C. Scott in it. Very good movie in its own right, but this is different. And like I said, this is actually a fascinating story. So we've got that. And then we're going to end the night with something new. We've got Jesse and Bree who worked in a haunted house in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Not like, you know, like a haunted house you go to at Halloween, Mm -hmm. haunted attraction, but it legitimately is haunted. It was haunted back when it was a hotel. And it's haunted now. And they tell us some stories that went on during the time that they were at the haunted house. So let's go ahead and listen to that real quick. Well, it won't be real quick. It's like an hour. <laughs> but listen to it like in an hour. Okay. And then good. we'll listen to Jesse and Bree. So we got three stories. We put it up on the uh, Patreon page. Since you guys are the one paying for the show, I thought I would let you decide what you wanted. And I gave you a choice of either doing paranormal, uh, several paranormal stories, or several true crime stories, or a mixture of both. And you guys, pretty much overwhelmingly, said you wanted both. So that's what we're going to do. I've got uh, a couple of stories. I've got a paranormal story. I've got a true crime story that's got some paranormal mixed with it. And then I've got a true crime story. So it really is a true mixture. Yeah, sounds like it. Because one's half and half.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh (laughs) Okay, well... um Hope so hope you can keep your story straight.
1: <laughs> well, We're going to start off with the half and half one. Okay. Um, it's the uh, Wabasha Street Caves. And uh, Julie Carlson, uh, one of our listeners, actually had suggested this literally three months ago. Yeah. And I kept trying to find a place for it, find a place for it. It never really fit with a regular show, but I think it fits perfect in what we're doing here. And what I like about this story is it's got a lot of history to it. And it's got a mixture of mobsters, and it's got a mixture of paranormal. And as people heard when we did the Al Capone story the other day, that was a good mixture when you mix yeah. mobsters and and uh, paranormal. So let's jump into this. The Wabasha Street Caves, are it's actually seven caves that are put together. They're not real caves. They are uh, man-made. Man-made caves? Man-made. So they, uh, they, they were uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, and they were used for... Uh, what do you call it? Silica, which is what you use to make glass. That's what they primarily used it for in about the 1840s. Oh, so that's, oh. that's when the mining actually started. Back in the early 1900s, uh, a French family of immigrants came over and used it to to uh, grow mushrooms. Like
2: Oh, wait. Grow mushrooms in yeah, there?
1: inside it because they found the conditions were perfect with it being damp like, and damp dark. Damp and dark, yeah. yeah. Perfect and,
2: temperature, maybe.
1: They thought that uh, this would be something that they would use just for the St. Paul area. It turned out to be so successful, they were shipping mushrooms all over the country.
2: Oh, wow. Good for them.
1: In the 1920s, it became a speakeasy. Uh, So the actual name was the Wabasha Street Speakeasy. And a little bit later after that, one of the the daughters from the uh, mushroom family, decided that they were gonna she wanted to turn it into a uh, a really fancy nightclub
2: Nice. she
1: called it castle royal and they actually put the front of it where the entrance to the cave was they actually made it look like a castle
2: oh wow that's so cool
1: now this is going to sound extremely cheap but remember this is back in the 20s she wanted this to be a place to where people could go in spend a dollar
2: $1 on a meal on a meal oh wow
1: which sounds like pretty cheap, but back then a dollar was basically a whole week's worth of groceries.
2: Oh man, I guess so. (laughs) So
1: what she wanted, she wanted people to dress up, come there, there would be uh, big bands there like Tommy Dorsey and all the the groups back in, Cat Callaway. Cool. uh, Cat Callaway, I'm just making shit up now.
2: Um, Oh, and I agreed with you, I'm like, yeah, ooh.
1: (laughs) But she wanted wanted people to come in there and be able to um, listen to the band, eat a nice dinner, she had a beautiful stone fireplace put in in what they called the Fireside Room. Uh, they had uh, a table there where you could play cards. So it really was a really cool setup. What ended up happening, though, is it became a safe haven for gangsters.
0: Mm. And what I
1: mean by that is there was kind of an unwritten rule that gangsters could come here to kind of get away mm-hmm. from the mob activity. And there was, it was agreed upon that there would be no mob crime so they actually had bought pretty much all the police off so they could come there they were on their best behavior and they would sit and go in this club and just kind of mingle around it was like a little vacation spot for them so everybody else was going to like florida or wherever else they were they were going to this cave in minnesota and everybody just got along you know as if they were best friends so that's kind of what happened now keep in mind this was during Prohibition time. Mm-hmm. So this place, you know, it was illegal to have liquor, but this place started turning into a place that had liquor, it had gambling, it had prostitution. You name it, it was happening out of this building.
2: Fun times. Yeah.
1: It's like John Dillinger, uh, who's one of the most famous gangsters, he was actually in there dancing with girls two weeks before he was gunned down. and in, in, oh, uh, I think it was wow. Chicago. Yeah. So uh, now the reason we're telling this story is because there was one occasion when mob business was actually um, conducted, we'll say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it was actually in in the uh, fireside room. And that room was just off the main cave. The main cave actually had a huge stage. Mm -hmm. And this was the room that was off that had the beautiful fireplace. So what happened was you had four guys sitting at the table playing cards. Mm -hmm. And also keep in mind back in this time, there were no laws about what time you had to shut down as a um, uh, a bar or establishment so you could stay open all night long. And that's what most of these places did. They stayed open primarily until like dawn.
2: Oh, nice. Yeah.
1: So these guys were in there. You've got four guys. They're sitting there at the, at the next to the fireplace. They're playing cards. And this tough guy comes in and he's carrying, you know, basically a uh, like a briefcase. And he goes over to the band and he politely asks the band to... Go ahead and finish up early tonight. Uh, To which they asked why, and they said, well, we just got some unfinished business.
2: Oh, crap. I would have been out of there so quick.
1: So the band decided that, you know, it would be in their best interest to probably finish up a little bit early. So they did. And uh, the crowd pretty much left. At this point in time, there was only a a closing waitress who had volunteered to stay behind and close up after the card game. And the four guys playing cards and the guy with the case. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, she went into the kitchen to start finishing up some stuff. She heard a popping sound of uh, Tommy machine guns. She ran back into the fireside room. There were three men dead on the floor.
2: Okay, why would you run back in there?
1: Well, I guess it, was, it wouldn't like immediately. It was oh. after the fact. Oh, gotcha. The hitman and his partner who was one of the guys playing cards I don't think they probably knew that oh. so there's four men but three one of them was this guy's one partner. Was a smith, they you know. were gone completely gone mm-hmm. uh, so she calls the police right and the police told her to wait outside what they had to tell me twice the police come in and they check out the whole inside and after being in for a while they come back out and they ask her why she filed a false report oh <gasps> And she's like, I don't know what you mean, filing a false report. And they told her that if she didn't recant her report, that they were going to arrest her for filing a false report and wasting police time. To which she took them inside. She wasn't just going to take that laying down. She took them inside and she showed them the bullet holes in the fireplace. So they kind of had to take her word for it. There was two bullet holes and those two bullet holes are actually still there today.
2: Oh, see, I thought you were going to say the police knew what was going on.
1: And well, that's, you're probably along the right lines because the theory is that the two mobsters that actually killed him actually mm-hmm. was still in the place when she walked out, and they either drug the body back to parts of the cave that were yeah. unfinished yeah. and probably just kind of buried them in a shallow grave because the bodies had never been found. Get out of here. Or the police did it themselves because the police were in there for a while.
2: I was going to say how long the heck she was outside for a good long time yeah. then.
1: So then let's, let's kind of go um, out. Now, obviously, let's talk more about the actual Castle Royal. It had all the bells and whistles. Like I said, it was a high-class club, 16,000-square-foot dance floor, elegant dining area, and then it had uh, a nice gourmet kitchen. It had uh, the liquor. It had the reception room. It was awesome. But it closed in 1941, mainly because by this time, Prohibition was over. Mm -hmm. So there was no sense in, you know, it just wasn't that big. You got liquor now legally. You didn't have to come there to get it. Most of the mobsters were in jail or dead by now. So there was, you know, all the business was gone. That was their business. It became a mushroom uh, place again. So people started doing it again. In the 70s, a disco decided to open up there. (laughs) Imagine how good that was. Now they changed the name a little bit. They changed it to spelled the same way pronounced it club royale
2: oh Uh, man how would the acoustics in this place though oh
1: it had to be probably awesome i would think well i
2: guess but you i guess i feel like it would echo you know i was like when we worked at the cavern right i mean it was
1: so tracy and i actually have worked in a place that was very similar to this it was an old limestone i guess what was it a quarry yeah and so it was made like that too. And they actually do, and, and now they do, uh, they've got like a bike course in there. They've got a rope course. They've got um, zip, zip lines. Man,
2: and if you had not zip lined in a cavern, you don't know what you're missing. Yeah. It's awesome.
1: Pretty cool stuff. So then there was this big flood that came through. The flood actually wiped out a lot of houses along mm-hmm. the way. The disco closed down. It didn't last very long. They pretty much used the cave then for storing, um, I guess, damaged stuff that was in people's houses after the flood because there was nowhere to put them. there was so yeah. much so they were keeping that in there and just basically some debris mm-hmm. from the flood the city ran into another problem in in the late 80s because the homeless were starting to use it oh. you could imagine how attractive it would be because minneapolis and uh, st paul gets cold up yeah, there and in the
2: wintertime time yeah. it stays the same
1: temperature and it stays in there. the same temperature yeah. in this cave area so you had all this furniture in there from the disco because that mm-hmm. stuff was still in there uh, oh, there's probably
2: food and stuff yeah. in there, too. Well, well not food, I'm, maybe, but
1: maybe, you like... But maybe 10-year-old food.
2: Well, no, no, I guess you're right. <laughs> what about, like, uh, booze and stuff? Well, did I mean, I don't I don't know about...
1: It. I, they probably didn't have the booze in there, but there was furniture. There was a yeah. door, so that made it really attractive. A door? Yeah, a front door. Oh. So not only did it, was it a cave, but then you'd have to put the wind rushing in. No,
2: well, that's true.
1: So the problem, though, was, was um, hygiene, and you got... Really no working plumbing or anything like that. Oh, you yeah. got people in there, you know, pooping and in the Smelling all funky and stuff. Yeah, the pooping in the pen and stuff. It's just not very sanitary. So the city was trying to decide what to do it and what their intention was was to just fill it all back in.
2: Oh. They were gonna no fill the whole thing back
1: in. But well, they could
2: use it like as a um like a shelter for a bunch of thousands and thousands of people in case. Well,
1: nobody ever thinks of stuff like that. That oh. seems like logic, but nobody ever thinks of doing that. What happened was a group called Brimmer Construction, they were uh, looking for a place to be able to store their equipment, but they didn't have a lot of money. They just happened to be driving downtown one day, and they look over, and there's a sign that says, Cave for Sale. <laughs> they checked on it, and they said this would be perfect, and it was three days before the city was due to, to just fill it all in. Oh, wow. So they decided to buy the place. Uh, they went in, they started tearing the disco out, and... The thing of it is, when they started tearing the disco out, they found this basically 1930s beautiful uh, dining room and stuff. And they're like, you know, we can't use this for storing equipment. This is awesome. Mm -hmm. So they decided to open it back up. And they're only open on Thursdays. Back then, they were only open on Thursdays. They may be open more now. But they opened up by Thursdays. They brought in jazz bands. And people come there and they do swing dancing and stuff like that as kind of a, mm-hmm. an homage. But they use it now as a reception area. You can rent it out to have weddings and stuff like that. But that's kind of what they're doing now. But let's get into, I told you there was a paranormal part of this. Let's talk about some of the hauntings okay. inside there. Well, there's there's apparitions that are apparently pretty happy and not afraid because they appear in front of people all the time.
2: Oh, wow. How cool.
1: There's a uh, a man with a Panama hat
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's constantly seen roaming around. There's also a, a man that meets a woman at the bar at 3 a.m. Oh. So you can actually, it's like a residual haunting where you can uh, see that. And for those of you who don't know what a residual haunting is, a residual haunting has uh, lots of different opinions on it, but it's basically something that happened in time that you can constantly keep seeing replaying, like having a movie on a loop. Yeah. Uh, and like in this instance, it's where a man and a woman, people can actually see a man and woman meet at the bar and just, I guess, hook up. And it's at the same time every night, even though there's nothing there. So it's,
2: Oh, man, that's so neat.
1: So like I said, it's it's actually a lot of, we should probably do something one time on residual hauntings. because yeah, There is a lot of different opinions about what it really is. Mm-hmm. Are you looking into another time zone? Mm-hmm. Uh, are you, you know, is it actually too... Uh, what do you call it? Um, just levels of time overlapping, you know, so it's kind of cool. Let's see what else we got. We have a, a man that, that's sitting. Um, they used to do plays in there, and they were um, doing the, not the audition, but the rehearsals of the play, mm-hmm. and they could look out there, and there would be a man sitting in the audience. Well, even though there was no audience, there was somebody just sitting out there watching him, and he would disappear. Oh. The uh, There's a woman that just goes wa- wandering around. Nobody really knows why or what she's, she's probably drunk. What she's t- probably uh, the three card players.
2: Yeah, what about they're, them? They're
1: seen walking around, and one of them apparently hated disco because back <laughs> because during the discotech days, uh, he apparently would would always screw with the equipment and everything like that. Oh
2: my gosh, I heard Disco Duck on the radio the other day. Oh my god, I swear we were. I was at work, and we always played that seventy station. And I'm like, where the, where the hell is that duck noise coming from?" And everybody looked at me like I was crazy. I'm like y'all don't hear a duck.
1: You know, Rick Dees actually has a farm not too far from here.
2: Nick, get out of here. Yeah,
1: he has a farm. He uh, he lives here in Kentucky.
2: I did not know that. Yep. But yeah, it's disco duck. I haven't heard of that thing in 30 years, probably.
1: Now before the disco, a manager and employee saw a man. He was all drinking, dressed in a, a gangster attire. They saw him walk past him, and they turned and looked, and he walked right through a wall. <laughs> Appa- That's
2: impressive, especially if it's a cave. <laughs>
1: yeah. So apparently these gangsters love kids because there's a couple of different uh, situations. In 2005, there was uh, they were kind of cleaning the caves up for something, and one of the the guys cleaning his young son was playing with a ball. You know, kind of bouncing back and forth on the wall. Mm-hmm. It went into the men's room when when the little boy went to pick up the ball, he looked up and he saw a man that was you know a gangster basically according to what he described by the dress he was straightening his tie he just kind of turned smiled at the boy and he winked and then he disappeared
2: oh that's cool
1: and then there was another time where there was actually a wedding and um this little boy said that his told his parents that his favorite time was playing with those guys because they were really fun to play with and she had no clue what he was talking she said about. She didn't know. But then, when they developed pictures, you could see like apparitions mm-hmm. all in the picture standing around her little boy. so that how cool is, is that?
2: Very. That is so creepy, though. Yeah. So Aww. that's the
1: story of the Wabasha Street Caves.
2: I think I'd like to hang out in there. A little
1: bit of gangster activity yeah. and uh, a little bit of paranormal activity so the only people killed in it was the three guys and their bodies were never found oh wow so they're probably they're they're somewhere back in that cave it's just where
2: yeah oh my god who even knows it'll be a mystery forever i'm sure (laughs) ain't nobody trying to dig up a cave i don't think
1: no i doubt it um the next story we're gonna jump right into it see that's a good thing about the bonus episodes we don't have to talk about anything like uh we don't have to talk about like the Patreon. We don't have to talk about buying t shirts and all that stuff because this is just the the best of the best right now. Listen yeah. to us. This next story is a paranormal story. It's uh nothing major. I just thought it was interesting. I thought it would be cool to share. Uh our last story tonight is the longer of the stories. Mm-hmm. So it'll seem like we're breezing along, but I'm saving the best for last. We're gonna talk about don't laugh, Round Cypress Head.
2: Didn't I try to laugh at that the other night? Yes,
1: you did laugh at it.
2: I guess Ninja don't like it either.
1: (laughs) Ninja, hush. We're doing a bonus episode. Thank you. Rude. Okay. Here's the deal. There is a particular group of trees. They're cypress trees, matter of fact. Huge, uh, very huge pine trees. And it's in Seminole County, Florida. It's known as Round Cypress Head because it's and it's right there at the uh, St. John's River, but mm-hmm. it's just known that because it's been there for centuries. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to get there. You need a boat, and you need some really good boots. It's just one of those places, a lot of swamp land and stuff around, yeah. and treacherous. Uh, but there's supposedly so much paranormal activity and occurrences going there that people that that's been there uh, said, "Hey, it's worth it. It's worth the trip and for what you're going to witness. It's worth it." And so that's one of the reasons why I thought it would be cool to do a story. So there's, are the
2: people scared or no? Yeah, there's
1: there's people scared. Oh. Now, they say that a demon lives there. Oh. So, and like I said he just kind of lives among the trees and like I said those trees are centuries old. Now, the legend goes that this goes all the way back to the Pro- Prohibition time in the 1920s. Yeah, everything kind of ties together. Yeah. It's like 6 degrees of prohibition. Yeah. Um for, and I don't know how many people are listening outside of the United States because eventually, though, when they become Patreon, they'll hear this episode. Um, but the prohibition, for those of you who don't know, prohibition was in the 20s. They actually outlawed alcohol, which was a stupid thing to do. And um, it was, uh, I guess, a kind of a disaster. And eventually in the 30s, early 30s, they made it legal again. But during the time where alcohol was illegal, everybody was bootlegging. They were making moonshine, and, and uh, it was kind of a dangerous racket. But I think we talked a little bit about that during the Al Capone deal. But that's what was going on. So this goes back to about that time. And the demon is supposed to be a shapeshifter, which means he can make himself into anything that he wants to be. And supposedly he turns into a bobtailed wildcat. yeah, oh. Which is the same thing as a Kentucky wildcat. So hey. Just saying.
2: Cats.
1: Many young hunters and, and fishermen were told uh, to never visit this area, mainly because the demon would kill and eat them. That's a good enough reason for me not to oh,
2: Yeah, go. I would be like, yeah, I'm not going. <laughs>
1: now, some people think that it's not really a, a demon, but a witch. And the bobcat is her familiar. And if you remember from the Salem mm-hmm. Witch Trial, the familiar words, always the animals that would come and suck on your teat. <laughs>
2: <laughs> your teeth
1: <teat. laughs> Better than sucking on your taint. Oh. That's gross. That's gross. I should have said that.
2: Why do you say that?
1: I don't know. But anyway, that's what... You got
2: teat and taint on your brain. Yeah.
1: That's what... uh, So that's what people think it is. It's the bobcat as being the familiar. Yeah. And just, you know, so the witch is out there. There's some paranormal investigators, mainly the ones who wrote the book, uh, Weird Florida, which is kind of cool because the the last show we just did was on um, uh, the Florida Dead Zone. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that information that I gathered actually came from that book, Weird Florida. So some of the same... The paranormal investigators who actually wrote that book, they took a trip there, and what they found was it was really dark, really scary, huge-ass large roots growing up out of the ground, almost to the point where it was two, three feet off the ground.
2: Like the roots?
1: Yeah, the roots. Oh, my gosh. And then the trees were so big that you could barely get any light even come through there. So one of the things that they found was they found some broken jars and some glass, but they didn't find any demons.
2: They didn't find no demons?
1: No. I don't know how they would have known if they found a demon or not, unless it would have attacked them. I mean, could they could have been walking past it and not known. Not but,
2: even known it, yeah.
1: yeah. I don't know. But some think that because they found the glass and, and the jars and stuff, they were like the old moonshine jars, that it was obvious that, you know, there was moonshining going on there at one point in time, and these were really old uh, that they found. So they think that maybe what it was is just moonshiners, maybe created the story oh, yes, of the they demon.
2: away from the still and all yeah, that and stuff. Yeah, that's
1: some Scooby-Doo shit.
2: Oh, no, that's some Andy Griffith shit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but so they made up the story, yeah, like on The Haunted House on Andy Griffith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so the hunters, but here's the problem. So you you talk to some hunters and stuff from the area, and they say that there's hunters and fishermen that have gone missing and never turned back up again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you go past that area, like if you're in a boat and go past that area, you can hear moaning oh, and wow. some weird sounds and then uh the trees just start bending, like really bending far over when there's no wind. Yeah. And then, you know, it's a horrible smell that comes from there. Mm. So, I don't know. It's just kind of.
2: I want to know how you got Scooby-Doo out of that. What do you mean?
1: Because Scooby-Doo, there was always, it was always some guy that was creating some kind of a rouge or a farce. Of, you know, it's oh, always oh, had oh, some kind right. of mask you, on acting like oh, a monster yeah, or something. For
2: you meddling kids. Yeah. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Okay. All right. I feel you, bro.
1: The normal people would have probably thought Scooby Doo, where you automatically went to Andy Griffith. As well, you know usual. he's
2: got all kinds of steals up in there, running and <laughs> all that stuff.
1: Okay, now I'm excited about this story. This is one you guys are really going to like. This, and to be honest with you, um, this is one that normally we would use on the show, but I really wanted to have a very special story that I thought would just knock your socks off to use on this very first Patreon. So I've been saving this one for you. Um, I want to talk about the Wineville chicken coop murders.
2: Is that the thing that made me laugh the other day?
1: It is. And you're going to feel extremely horrible about laughing.
2: Oh, man.
1: So here's what we got. Gordon Northcott was born in 1906. Now, he's going to be the villain in this whole thing. He's originally from Saskatchewan, Canada, and he moved to L.A. with his parents back in 1924. He asked his dad to buy him some land out in Wineville, which is eh, about an hour away from L.A. It's like a little suburb, but a little further out. It's more country. And uh, he wanted him to build him a house to make a chicken farm on. He bought, he brought in his nephew. Now, his nephew lived up in Canada, and he, he was 13 years old. He went and pretty much asked and got permission from this boy's parents to bring him to the chicken farm and help work. Which, you know, back in the 20s, that's not that big of a deal. Uh, Thirteen-year-olds would mm-hmm. work all the time like Up that. On the farm, yeah. Now his his like I said, his nephew. By the way, thirteen years old. His name is Sanford Clark. Okay, that was right around 1926. Now, over the next two years, unfortunately, he sexually abused Sanford and beat him, sexually did stuff to him. It was a horrible, horrible situation for Sanford.
2: That is really bad. Yeah. At least he wasn't doing the chickens. Right.
1: It's nice for you to make a joke out of this.
2: Sorry. (laughs) It is bad. I feel bad for him.
1: Unfortunately, Sanford was not alone. Because by most accounts, Gordon would drive around. And if he saw a little boy he liked, he would ask him if they needed a ride home. They would get into his car. And then he would abduct them, take them back to his house, to the ranch. He would sexually assault them, and in most cases, he would take them back home. What? Yep. Well, that's kind of weird. He would turn right around and take them back home. Uh, by most of historic accounts, this happened to about 20 different boys. Mm. Now, not all these boys were so lucky.
2: Well, I was going to say, I mean, they, they were lucky if they got to live and go home.
1: Right. There was four little boys that were abducted and kept in chicken coops over several months while their parents were basically frantically looking for them and hanging up uh, uh, posters and stuff yeah. like that, pictures, trying, trying to find them. These four boys were eventually murdered. Aww. To start off, we've got an unnamed Mexican boy, mm-hmm. uh, probably teenager, younger teenager. He picked him up down in California close to the Mexican border. He brought him back to the chicken, chicken ranch. Then there you got the brothers Lewis uh, and Nelson Winslow, they were also killed, and you've got Walter Collins. So those are the four, and we're going to get into each one a little more. But how he was actually caught is Sanford Clark's his little nephew, his 19-year-old sister, Jessie was really concerned because some of the letters Sanford was sending, uh, which by the way he was forced to send, this wasn't something, but uh, what these letters that were being sent. She just kind of gathered something was wrong with him, mm-hmm. you know, just something didn't seem. I mean, right. was
2: he telling him to watch a right and stuff, or just to make? Yeah, sure? probably, probably. Like to make sure yeah, I that think he was. Okay, I think whatever. he, yeah,
1: he was kind of forcing them to mm-hmm. write stuff that made it sound too good or something mm-hmm. like that. So, she decided that she probably needed to go down and see what was going on. So she came down to see Sanford, and one night when Gordon went to sleep. He told her that Gordon had killed four boys. She went back to Canada about a week later. To me, that's weird. Why wouldn't you call the police?
2: Well, yeah, unless...
1: So you know this guy killed four people, but a week later, she goes back to Canada. She reports it over there to the American consul. Well, the American consul, they wrote a letter to the LAPD. And they had some concerns of immigration issues because the little thirteen-year-old boy, who was fifteen now, mm-hmm. this is two years later. Uh, Sanford, I mean, he was not an American citizen. Yeah. So they they had some concerns, and I don't, I'm not sure if, if Northcup was was actually an American citizen either mm-hmm. uh, when they moved. But I don't know, you know, what took place. But so they called that they want to call the immigration service and uh, make sure that there was no. You know, nothing that they screwed up, basically, in this case. So August 31st, 1928, two U.S. immigration inspectors, um, a guy named Justin Shaw and and a guy named uh, Mr. Scalorn, they visited the ranch and they found Sanford Clark sitting there. Like I said, 15 years old, and they took him into custody. Now, Northcott, he had seen seen him kind of coming up the long road. Mm -hmm. Um, So he decided he was going to make a run for it. But what he did was he told Clark to stall. There was like a big tree line right there, so he could kind of duck on it. But he told Clark he needed them to stall the agents or else he would shoot him with a rifle from the tree line. Yeah. And he was basically going to be watching him. This is just like an all-around good guy.
2: Yeah, sounds like it.
1: So as soon as, as Sanford Clark felt safe that the agents could protect him, he, he kind of told them what was going on. He said that Northcott had fled, and by the time Northcott had been on the run, you know, by this time he'd been on the run for like two hours. So he had a good good little head start. And Northcott and his mom, uh, Sarah Louise Northcott, had fled to Canada, but they were arrested in uh, British Columbia on September 19th, 1928. Why was his mom on the run with him?
2: Yeah, did she know what was going we on? We hadn't
1: talked about him. Well, let's get into the actual murders, and I'll kind of tell you what's going on. Now, first, we've got the teenage Mexican boys. Now, Sanford Clark said that Northcott forced him to participate. In disposing of this boy's head, what? So they beheaded him. They um, oh my God. took the head, burned it in a fire pit, and then kind of crushed the skull. He then took the um, uh, the boy's body. the The fifteen year old said he took the the boy's body, and he had to leave it on the side of the road. the The headless body on the side of the road in uh, La Puente. Then you've got Walter Collins, and here's where the mom comes in. Mom called and, and told uh, Northcott that she was going to come down for a visit. Like I said, she was about an hour away. She was going to come in, and she was going to spend the night. She noticed that Northcott was kind of, Gordon was kind of acting kind of weird mm-hmm. and trying to keep her away from the chicken coops.
2: Mm-hmm
1: after a period of time of her just saying uh, something's up, I got to check something out. She goes to the chicken coop and she sees nine-year-old Walter Collins. You would think like most moms would be like, what the hell's going on here? Uh, but no, what she says is uh, you've got a problem on your hand. First of all, Gordon used to work at a supermarket where little Walter Collins and his mom used to come into all the time. Mm -hmm. So her first instinct was uh, he can identify you. So what needed to happen was she devised this plan to kill this little boy.
2: What a sicko. So that's where he got his sickness from, I guess.
1: Oh, you have no clue. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) So she devised this plan that her, Gordon and um, the nephew are going to all kill him. That way they can't tell on each other. They're all involved. So that was the plan. Northcott suggested they use a the gun. You know, the Norman, uh, or Gordon, I'm sorry, suggested they use a gun. And but the mom said, no, that would be too loud. You didn't want to draw attention from the neighbors. So what she decided to do was she used the blunt end of an ax to bludgeon little Walters while he was asleep on a cot.
2: I don't like this story.
1: Yeah. Well, you're not going to like a lot of it.
2: Well, I don't like it.
1: Then they killed the Winslow brothers the exact same way. Aww. And the Winslow brothers, I can't remember what their ages are. I think they were 10 and 12. So they were pretty close. Uh, the Winslow brothers, he had actually picked up, uh, he was driving around downtown and he had seen them and he picked them up down there while the parents were doing something. I can't remember what it was now, but this is this is basically what he did. And if you remember, I, I had mentioned on the last episode, uh, but maybe you haven't heard that yet, there's in, in um, American Horror Story, The Hotel, this is actually mentioned briefly. The, uh, the lady that was the maid to uh, Patrick March that did all of his dirty mm-hmm. work, she had a son that was abducted on uh, Halloween and um, she she just happened to look up and he was in a car that was driving off and then it shows him at a chicken ranch and it shows him finding some bodies, but her son wasn't one of the bodies they found, and that was based completely off of, off this? of this situation yeah because that's exactly what happened as we get into a little more you'll you'll see a little more um, so what happened is so they they killed all three of these unfortunately uh they buried some of the body parts. They, they dismembered all of them, and they buried some of them there uh, on the farm. They used quicklime to try to decompose the bodies. The rest of the bodies uh, that they didn't bury there, they took out to the desert and tried to burn. Uh, so, disgusting. They didn't find, so, so the, you know, after they're arrested, they're trying to find the evidence of what's going on. Uh, They didn't find any full body parts, but what they found was 51 body part fragments. And that was enough to be able to um, take them to trial over and try to get a sentencing. So what ended up happening when it was all said and done is Gordon was given the death penalty. The mom was given life in prison. And the reason is she didn't get the death penalty is because she was a woman, and they didn't want to give a woman the death penalty. Whatever. And the other interesting thing is, is uh, Northcott Gordon was only charged with three murders. Um, the Mexican little boy, they couldn't charge him for it because they they knew the story, but they didn't have any proof that that ever actually happened.
2: Well, they needed to be dismembered and hitting the damn head right. with an axe. Bunch of jerk-offs.
1: So he only got charged with the other ones. Terrible. Now, what's funny, not funny, I don't guess, because nothing's funny about the story by any means, but they were arrested in Canada on September 19th, 1928. But somebody screwed up the extradition paperwork.
2: Of course they did.
1: And it took until November 30th, 1928, to get them actually sent to L.A. before they could even stand trial. Now, while they were kind of waiting for this extradition paperwork to go through, and uh, they were still up in Canada, Mrs. Northcut or Northcott, I mean she admitted to all the murders. Gordon admitted to killing five boys, but both of them recanted their tails before they end up getting to l a. Miss Northcott was actually sentenced on December thirty first, nineteen twenty. They moved quick back in these days. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about it, they arrest somebody in, in February, and you know half the time a year later they're already getting the death penalty or whatever. Where now it takes like thirty years, yeah, it's and ridiculous. then it never actually ended up happening. So during during that time, this is where it gets really crazy. During the, during her hearing, she claimed that her son was innocent. And then she started making all these bizarre claims. She said, for example, that her son was the illegitimate son of an English nobleman. Then she said that uh, she was actually his grandma. I forget this. Here's why. She said she was actually his grandma because he was the result of an incestual relationship between her husband and her daughter. So... Follow Look a that. Bunch one. Of sickos. So she's saying that then she says that as a child that Gordon was sexually uh molested by the entire family.
2: Why didn't she do something about it if she knew?
1: I don't know if any of that I mean all that stuff's like three different directions. Yeah,
2: well that's true. So he
1: can't be he can't be the, the son of her husband and her and her daughter, and at the same time she says he's the son of an illegitimate son of an English nobleman.
2: Yeah. Uh cuckoo.
1: Now, if that stuff's not crazy enough, even more crazy, she only spent about 12 years in jail and was paroled.
2: Mm, that doesn't surprise me.
1: I mean, how do you...
2: That doesn't surprise me one bit.
1: I mean, it's just absolutely crazy to think that you can have a hand in the murder of three kids and run and you get 12 years in jail. And this was back when they were strict on that stuff
2: that's why I hate this world sometimes.
1: Now Northcott did himself, Gordon, he was convicted on February 8th, 1929. And, uh, they didn't actually convict him. He was charged with the three murders, but they didn't convict him on Walter Collins because his mom had already pleaded guilty to it. So they didn't, you know, have him plead. but it didn't matter because he was still given the death penalty on the ones that he did admit to. Yeah. Um, he hung out, or they, I said hung out. He was actually hung, mm-hmm. <laughs> because he did hang out. He was actually hung on October 2nd, 1930. He was, uh, 1930, he was 23 years old. Here's a fun fact for you. Uh, Wineville, <laughs> they actually changed their name uh, to Mariloma because they had so much negative attention. They said that the courtroom wasn't a, was not a pretty good-sized courtroom, because this is in L.A., yeah, and they said it was packed, Every Every day of every session, he was completely packed. Just,
2: it's mind-boggling that people are sick like that.
1: Now, I have a caveat story for you, because this actually has a kind of a part two. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little more about Walter Collins, because this may be the strangest part of the whole story. So Walter Collins, his mom was Christine Collins. Now... Initially, when Walter went missing, keep in mind he was nine years old, Mm -hmm. and, you know, the mom hung up posters and stuff everywhere looking for him, but she initially thought that some enemies of her husband had kidnapped him or taken him or something. Apparently she had a husband that was in jail. He was in Folsom State Prison, Mm -hmm. Johnny Cashland, and he was in there for eight burglaries. Mm -hmm. So apparently he wasn't the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. Well, Walter... You know, he disappears, and this thing got national attention. It was one of those deals where, like, the Lindbergh baby or Mm -hmm. something where everybody knew about. Well, apparently the police department during this time, uh, the L.A. Police Department, as pretty much now, had a really bad reputation. Uh, A lot of negative press and what have you, some scandals and stuff had went on. And during the course of trying to find this boy, it was taking forever. And they were really starting to get some bad press and some pressure from the, uh, uh, the public to, to find this little boy. Well, five months in, a little boy, claimed to be Walter, was found up in Illinois. They sent some letters and some pictures. And after seeing all this and exchanging all this stuff, the mom, Christine, actually paid for him to be shipped to L.A., the police organized this big public reunion because they figured, hey, this is a chance to, you know, get a little bit of glory back. Look what we did. We solved this, this case. Uh, and they wanted to, you know, erase some of this negative publicity. Yeah, but they didn't
2: even know it was him. They didn't know. That. I mean.
1: Well, supposedly it's him. The mom's seen pictures and everything oh. and said it was him. Well, he gets there. And at the reunion, the mom looks at the little boy and says, that's not my son. To which. The police replied with what may have been my favorite quote from the police ever. They said, well, take him home and try him out for a couple of weeks. Shut your face. I swear to God, (laughs) this is public record. and You could look this up. The police said, take him home and try him out a couple of weeks. So she, after three weeks, which I think is pretty good. She even put an extra week in there. After three weeks, She returns to the police department. She talks to a detective or a police chief, Jones. She even brought dental records to show this is not her son. Police chief, Jones, had her committed to a psychiatric (gasps) ward. Stop! Under a code 12. And a code 12 is used to commit someone that you deem difficult or inconvenient.
2: Oh, my gosh. Do you know how or everybody in this world would be if that still happened?
1: I know. Absolutely.
2: Oh my lord.
1: So during the time that she's kind of, you know, incarcerated in the psychiatric ward, uh Jones starts questioning a little boy. And he admitted that he was a runaway named Arthur Hutchins Jr. And he's 12. He's not, you know, he's not even roughly 10 as this little boy would have been mm-hmm. by now. And he's he's like, "Well, how did all this happen?" right? Well, a drifter saw him at a cafe, and he remarked that, hey, you look like that missing boy. And he kind of came up with a plan to get to L.A. Now, how this happened, I think this drifter actually called the police and said, hey, this little boy I think is the one you're looking for. Yeah. So they come and pick this little boy up. Well, initially, he's like, no, I, I don't know who this kid is. And then all of a sudden, he's like, hey, this boy lives in L.A., my favorite movie star at the time, a guy named Tom Mix, lives in L.A. If I say I'm him, it's a free trip out to L.A. This kid, apparently, his original, his uh, uh mom died when he was young, like six, seven years old. Mm-hmm. He was living with a stepmom that he hated. So that's why he ran away from home. He'd, he'd been running away from home for, he'd been gone for like a month when all this took place. So after a month of kind of, you know, being on the road... Now all of a sudden he's got these police that, that asking if he's this little boy and now he figures hey I can get to L.A., get further away from my stepmom and maybe get a chance to meet my favorite movie star Tom Mix. I have no clue who Tom Mix is. And uh i throw that in there. <laughs> <laughs> but after ten days, obviously of being locked up, Christine was released.
3: Because the
1: the police finally figured out this was not her son. I was
2: going to say, well, my God, thank God it was only 10 days.
1: So then she immediately files a lawsuit against the LAPD. good for her. (laughs) This is so funny. She wins the lawsuit in September of 1930. It was for $10,800. Doesn't sound like a lot of money, but that's $154,000, roughly today's money. Jones never paid it. Yeah, sorry to I don't know. I don't know how you sue a police department and not get paid.
2: She never ever got paid.
1: No, she even went as far. Keep in mind, this is 1930. In 1942, she filed a lawsuit for like fifteen thousand dollars, roughly. It was like fourteen thousand and change against him. Who mm-hmm. he was now retired. I don't know why it was against him personally. Maybe that's just the way they did stuff back then. They had to yeah. against him personally because it specifically said that he didn't pay. And if it was, but she filed it against the police department. I don't know Mm. how that works. So he never paid. So she's this lady here now. She's back to being so hopeful. Yeah. That she's got her son to. Wow, this is not my son. Yeah. And so she's still trying to cling to hope because keep in mind Northcott. He at one time they said they were they were guilty, and then he said he was innocent before he got back to L.A. and. She's trying to cling to that little hope that he's not dead. But the reality is all the police and everything have already said that little boy died on that ranch and was buried on that ranch. Aww. They just didn't have the DNA and tough testing back there to prove it. That's and the
2: saddest uh, thing I've ever heard.
1: So Northcott sent her a telegram right before and said he wanted to see her before his execution, that he was tired of lying. And that he wanted to tell her the truth, but he would only do it in person. So she goes up to the execution. A couple hours, just a couple hours before the before the hanging. And when she got up to him, he basically said, I don't want to talk to you. So he gets her up there, then he says, I don't want to talk to you. I don't know anything about it. I'm innocent. What? Yep. And what the
2: hell is wrong with him?
1: Yeah. Exactly. So then they go through and she stands out in the audience and she stays out there. And then they go through with the hanging. And, you know, it just went as planned.
2: So it's like she don't know anything then. Yeah. I mean, basically.
1: I mean, everybody well, she, knows. She, she, she kind of w- knows, but yeah. But she would have needed that closure. And if that story sounds familiar at all, that was the story of the uh, 2008 movie called The Changeling. Oh. It was basically not the whole Gordon North, but it was based on the mom and her son missing. So it was more focused on that story mm-hmm. than it was the whole Northcott thing. Oh, man.
2: God, he was a damn douche to the very end.
1: To the very end. To the very end. Dickhead. So that is the story of the Wineville Chicken Coop murders
2: that's terrible Now, don't you feel bad that
1: you laughed about it
2: well i do feel bad (laughs) i wish they would just have named it something different
1: well i could have probably named it something different what i don't know i'm just saying i could have it was my my choice
2: (laughs) oh my gosh that's that is a terrible story my i mean my heart aches for those little kids that's the saddest thing ever and i hate him i'm glad he's dead
1: so what we want to do, we got just a little bit of extra time left. I wanted to uh
2: I would have went up and punched him in the nuts right when he was getting hung. I would have. <laughs> I would have right before the news dropped, I would have hung I mean, I would have grabbed his gonads and I would have twisted them and ripped them off and
1: if you haven't seen that movie, uh The Changeling, it's a really good movie. It's got Angelina Jolie in it. Yeah, I don't
2: think I've
1: seen it. And it's that. it's a really good movie. It's worth checking out, so I would advise you to check it out. I thought it would be kind of cool to tell you guys, since we had a few extra minutes, about a local story. Now, most people, when they think Lexington, Kentucky, they think the University of Kentucky. But we've actually got a a smaller private school here named Transylvania that's actually a very well-known university. And back in the early 1800s, it was world-renowned. And the reason I'm telling you that is because there is a story um, that's kind of cool. And it's not really a paranormal story, but it kind of somewhat is, deals with a curse. There's a professor, Constantine Raffinesque that is actually buried underneath uh, one of the uh, uh, buildings there called the Old Morrison on Transylvania's campus. And let me tell you how all this came to be. Now, first of all, he was born in in Constantinople, which is now basically Istanbul, Turkey, back around 1783. He migrated to the U.S. in 1802, and he became a very famous botanist. He uh, collected all kinds of specimens and stuff, and actually it was like over 6,000, uh, 6,700, I think, different species that he actually uh, put in on paper as far as naming them and, and uh, what have you. So it was pretty pretty big, but in uh, he went back to Europe for a while. He came back in 1815. And he continued to work in biology and zoology. Uh, He came to Lexington, and uh, Transylvania became a professor of botany there in 1819. Now, throughout his career, um, he was never really recognized for the accomplishments that he did. But after the fact, when it was all said and done, they realized how important his work was. He was kind of, um, I would say, really eccentric. So he uh, didn't have a lot of friends. And on more than one occasion, um, he actually stayed with uh, 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 James Audubon, the guy who's famous from Kentucky for drawing all the pretty pictures of birds in the books. And uh, there was even a, a time where uh, James Audubon actually had a very expensive violin, and he also had a live bat. And uh, Raffinesque, he didn't recognize <laughs> that this was an expensive violin, so he used it and he swung and destroyed the violin uh, trying to kill this bat. And uh, to thank him for destroying their violin, Audubon later gave him a, a like a beautiful color illustration of a gigantic fish that swims on the Ohio River. Um actually wrote and published a paper on this eight-foot fish, only to thereafter <laughs> to notice that uh, Audubon had made a joke out of it. Uh, needless to say, the two were never really close. So that's what happens when you destroy a, a very expensive violin. But as a professor... Um, he was one of these guys, man, he he wouldn't show up for class all the time. He was more apt to play hooky than the actual students were. Like He liked to take nature walks and stuff like that. But he also was kind of known to be a little too friendly with the wife of the college president, Horace Hawley. Um, and that's, keep in mind, very conservative back in these days, so that didn't really set well with uh, the people that were really, you know, um, into their faith at Kentucky at the time. But whatever the reason was in particular, in 1926, they forced him out of Transylvania. Even though he was established, uh, they said that, you know, President Hawley said, hey, we don't want you uh, to be a professor here, so it's best that you just go somewhere else. Well, he didn't take kind of that, obviously, and uh, he put a curse uh, on the school when he left. He said, damn thee and thy school as I place curses on you. Or something like that. I don't. I wasn't there, so I can only take their word for it. But just like any time else, there's a curse or something. Things tend to start coming true. So what happened was, uh, the following year, President Holly was himself forced out of college. How fitting. Him and his wife decided that they were going to go teach in Louisiana, but he caught yellow fever and died. Then Transylvania's main building, um, it was the Gratz Park Building back then, but I'm not sure what it's called today it burned down within two years of the curse the old morrison building which is where he's actually his tomb is uh it actually suffered major fire damage back in 1969 so they started having all these problems so what happened was after uh raffinesque was actually forced out he returned to philadelphia he began his professorship there at a different college and he worked there till he died in 1840. now without a church home raffinesque was buried in a a cemetery on 9th and bainbridge in philadelphia Uh, this cemetery was created for travelers and others in philadelphia who uh, didn't have a a faith or membership to a church and so they just decided to have them buried there you could have up to six bodies that could share the same space in one of these potter's fields that's what they call them and uh, that's kind of kind of crappy but And right now it actually is part of the Philadelphia slum areas. Now, Robertson's cemetery was destroyed in the 20s and a group of Transylvanians came together and said, hey, why don't we go recover the body and we can actually have him buried right here on the campus of Transylvania. So that's what they did. So there's actually a little small crypt under the steps of the old Morrison building. And as far as we know, it's a Raffinesque. So that's what they did to try to resolve the curse. And it's kind of fitting that on the tomb right there underneath the, the, uh, the Morrison steps, it says honor to whom honor is overdue. So kind of a fitting end for somebody that maybe didn't get the credit he deserved back in his day. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Me too. Well, you look like you were going to say something and you stopped.
2: I know. You do that a lot in life.
1: I <laughs> <laughs> hope you guys enjoyed that story. Now let's listen to Jesse and Bree. They're really funny. They're a couple and they're super funny. So I think you're going to like this one. They were a lot of fun to interview. Mm hmm. Hey guys, we are on with Jesse and Bree from Lawrenceburg, and uh, that's here in Kentucky. A lot of cool stuff. That's where the wild man is up there, kind of like a Bigfoot-type character. And you've heard us talk about that before when we had Lee Kirkland on the show. Of course, he does a convention up there called Wild Man Days strictly for that, so we got into detail about that about a month ago. There's also another nice location as far as the Paranormal Goals when it comes to Lawrenceburg and ST Anderson Hotel. And that's what you guys wanna talk to us about. First of all, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. It's no problem at all. I'm gonna turn the microphone over to you two and let you tell us About the experiences you've had at the Anderson Hotel.
3: Okay, so my first year working in the hotel, I was actually in a cage. It was a caged bathroom. I was feeling like I was being strangled, and I actually had bruises on my neck after we left for the night. It was... Pretty, pretty scary.
0: Yeah, and um, <laughs> after that had happened, we had actually gone into the backstory of the hotel to learn because the hotel has been turned into a haunted house every year, and uh, we had learned that there was a man who had died in the hotel who was notoriously known for strangling women, especially his uh, wives, and beating them, and just being very, very harmful towards any women that he ever saw. And we believe that it was the spirit of that man trying to get to Bree. While I, on the other hand, before we had joined into the hotel, I hadn't much of an experience with the paranormal. I was always interested in it, reading books and hearing stories. I've only had one or two experiences before this happened. And I did something that you're normally not supposed to do when working with the paranormal and paranormal places. I was trying to antagonize the spirit that were within there. So every night of the hotel, we would go up the main stairway, get ready for everything. And every time I went up there, I always was trying to antagonize the spirits, like insulting them, saying, if you do something to me, I will stop. Well, about two weeks before our season came to an end, I was in a room with a Jeepers Creepers-like character. He was wearing stilts and had this whole big kind of show about how he did everything. I was supposed to be laying in a bed like he was supposed to be, like a boogeyman kind of character. I was supposed to stay out in the hall and wait for a signal for a group to come in. Now, keep in mind, in that room, there was a doorway to a bathroom that we had removed the door to and there was nowhere to put it. So we put it behind the main door of the room, but we angled it to where no matter how hard you hit it, no matter where you hit it, it would not topple over on the person who closed the door. Well, I got the signal for a group coming in. And I rushed in like I normally do and went to slam the door shut. As soon as the door shut, I looked over to my left. And next thing you know, I saw a door coming. The last second, I blocked it with my wrist. It really messed up my wrist. I had to be sent home early for the night. But after that, I stopped antagonizing the spirits. But they never stopped proving that they were there to me and to other people within the hotel. Another instance, uh, I was in a little hallway area leading out the back door, which we hadn't used that season so i was doing a little pop scare kind of thing all night i kept hearing footsteps coming up the stairwell stairwell behind me and i was thinking oh there must be someone some security just running up and down well we had a small break so i decided to check and i found out that the back door to lead out of the hotel was locked and no one had the key to that just yet So we went back from our break, and next thing you know, I started hearing the steps again. All of a sudden, they just kept getting closer. Like they would go to about the middle way up the steps and then go back down. This time, the steps went all the way up the stairwell and came towards me. Next thing you know, I hear a loud boom right behind me, like someone dropped a box of heavy things right behind me. I will be the first to admit, it scared the ever-living crap out of me. I quickly turned around, and I saw nothing there whatsoever. So I knew that I just had to get away from that area because I did not feel comfortable there anymore.
3: And another incident that happened with me last year... I was in a doll room, meaning there were porcelain dolls, baby dolls, any kind of doll you could think of was in this room. And we had about probably a five foot tall dollhouse. One night before we opened, I went up there to get like all the lights and stuff ready. And I heard like a laughing, like a baby laugh. So I was like, okay, what's going on? And none of these dolls were like battery operated. They they were just dolls. They they couldn't make noise. After a while I was like, okay, you know, I'm just gonna leave. I got a little scared, <laughs> so I went to get ready. And I actually had Jesse go up there with me. When he went in there with me, he actually heard I think did you hear the
0: Yes the dolls that.
3: making noises? Yes, I did. Yeah. And then there was a clown room the year before every like the clown pictures and everything just started moving by themselves and it was it was pretty creepy
0: the thing about the clown room was they had noticed there was also clown dolls and things in there they noticed that they had started moving what the room was was people would come into like a bar slash clown style room and the lights would come off a strobe light would appear and a a clown wielding a chainsaw would come out and running at the people well they uh, noticed that things started to move and they noticed it only happened when the lights came off and the strobe light hit so they decided to watch the clowns and they found that one of the clowns that had been on the ground had been moved to a shelf in like a The link of an eye second to a shelf that no one could reach without a ladder. We didn't have anyone tall enough at the time to even reach that high. So we kind of decommissioned that room for the rest of the night. We kind of had to move people around and avoid that room because the people that were in that room, scaring people, refused to go in that room anymore. And I'd say one of the most impactful things that we didn't get to see, but we heard from one of our other scare actors that was just phenomenal for me to hear Was uh, one of our scare actors was leaving our makeup slash break room, uh, getting ready to go into a spot to start scaring for the night. And he heard a noise behind him and he turned around quickly because he was by himself. Keep in mind, he turned around and he saw a little girl in a red dress walk out of the makeup slash break room and walk through a wall. And he he didn't believe in the paranormal at the time, but he saw that and he was just a complete true believer after that.
1: You know, it's it's funny because <laughs> when you said the Anderson Hotel, I did not realize that it had opened up as a haunted attraction. And I'd heard, you know, rumors of it being haunted and stuff like that for years. So when you said, you know, Bree started saying, hey I I was working in a caged room, and I'm thinking, man, what kind of a hotel is this? You got a caged room? <laughs> so it didn't click to me that it was a haunted attraction until after the you know the other story started, and I thought, okay, okay, well, it makes a lot more sense now.
3: <laughs> Probably should have been more specific.
1: <laughs> well, it's, it, you're used to being there with it being a haunted attraction, and sometimes you forget that not everybody knows right. that it was a haunted attraction, because like I said, I didn't know, but I, I did a little bit of looking up since you guys started talking about it, and then, apparently it must be pretty badass, because they said when it opened up in 2018, there were 400 people who came on Friday and Saturday that first weekend and 50 of them turned around and, and couldn't complete the tour.
0: We had a board in our main lobby that we called the uh, Quitter Board and we marked throughout the entire haunt season how many people had quit and we were... We
3: probably had about 500 people yeah, quit. Yeah, close
0: to 500 people quit that season. What do you think
1: makes it so scary for people to where they're dropping out like that?
0: Well, uh, not only the fact of it being haunted, because before you go in, The man who runs it, who is actually the mayor of Lawrenceburg, Troy Young, would shout out to Troy. Yeah, shout out to Troy Young. Uh, He would tell the group coming in, he would tell them the history of the hotel and tell them that it's one of the most haunted places in Kentucky's history. So, besides Waverly Hill Sanitarium, of course. I guess that would get them in the mindset of the paranormal. Like people normally are scared and things like that when they hear the paranormal. So that kind of puts them on their edge. And then our scare actors, it is a a uh, no-touch haunted attraction, yes, but... But we
3: do get in your face. Yes, but we are
0: allowed to be up in your face screaming, chainsaws, whatever we want to do, just... We keep no, away from physical. the physical touching, the cursing, things like that. It's a family-friendly attraction if you think your kids are okay with being scared. But right. we're up in place just typically, screaming.
3: Typically, the guy who runs it, Troy, he will tell you he would prefer kids not to go through. But, you know, there's some parents that are like, you know, my child's two years old. Let, let them get scared. But he, he would prefer them not to.
0: Even though I myself have seen two, three, five year, all the way up up to eight-year-olds, not even blink an eye at the things that we're doing, coming at them, scream, whatever. The
3: parents
0: parents are on the ground peeing their pants. I literally had a group one night with, it was two parents and their three kids. The kids weren't scared, but the mom and dad were on the ground screaming. The dad got up, and he literally, and I quote, jumped up and said, I think I just pissed myself. (laughs) We encourage all types of people to come in, preferably kids we kind of try to stay away from but it's a public attraction you you pay your money we do we, it doesn't matter how old you are what race sex gender whatever just we just feel that it is not completely suitable for children but if you want to bring your kid go for it let them have the time of their life.
1: i don't know if you're familiar of uh, McCamey manor but that's the haunted house that around halloween time it always gets floated around it you had to sign a waiver and they could touch you and beat on you and lock you up and all that stuff. And But we had Russ McCamey, who actually runs that, and one of the young ladies, uh, Christina, who's always in the videos that you see on YouTube that's ex-military and came over from Afghanistan to be able to go through this. And he had her crying like crazy and she'd actually tried a couple of times and went through but we had both of them on the show to talk about both sides of it you know what does Russ get out of through a lot of doing that and setting it up to be the scariest and most stringent haunted haunted house in the country and then what is it like for somebody to go through it it's actually one of my favorite episodes
3: I've actually wanted to go through it but I don't think I could like I just I couldn't.
0: I, I'm a scare actor, and I love horror and being scared, but I just don't think I don't I like can. to be scared. <laughs> I love <That's> being <laughs> scared, but I don't think I would the strength to go through all that. I'd love to meet the man and speak to him and figure out, like how he does things and what he gets is what all he does for it but i just i don't think that i would be able to go through it
1: the new one he opened up because he was out west and there was so much i know he started off i think in illinois and then it went somewhere uh went out to san diego i believe and both places pretty much kind of gave him the boot from being able to run it out there and now he's just outside of nashville so he's really not that far from us
0: Yeah, yeah. I've been watching YouTube videos for a long time. Like, whenever I got into the haunted house business, as I like to say, I've been watching videos and behind-the-scenes stuff of different haunted houses, and Candy Manor just really just caught my attention real quick, and I've just... I've been following his content ever since.
1: Yeah, I think the new one down there, from my understanding, it's not quite the same. So it's a little less physical, a little more mental, uh, which is kind of what he's made his thing on anyway. It's, it's been all about mentally torment rather than anything else. Well, Guys, it was fun having you on. We'll get you because I know y'all have more stories. I'll get you on some other time and we'll let you tell some other stories.
0: Well, we would love to be on the show again.
1: All right. No problem. We'll definitely get you on. I love to have repeats. As you can hear Ninja barking in the background, as he does most shows. Let's <laughs> to say the professionalism <laughs> here never stops.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised that uh, none of our dogs decided to uh, decide to tell their stories today, as it will. <laughs> yeah, they're all tucked out somehow.
1: Well, Jesse, Bree, thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you thank for you having, us. having us. You're more than welcome. See, aren't they a fun couple? They are
2: fun, for sure.
1: And they're definitely Kentucky. Their country is, I'll get out. <laughs> Love it. And we didn't do this at the beginning, as usual. We want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank all of you for everything you're doing, especially in these hard times out there.
2: Absolutely.
1: And also, real quick, we just want to mention that if you're going through a tough time and you need somebody to talk to, you can always reach out to Tracy or myself. Where well, you can reach out to anybody in the group. And if you feel like you would rather speak to someone more anonymously, you can call the hotline, the Suicide Hotline here in America.
2: Yeah, it's 800-273-8255. Or you can text them at seven four one seven four one. 741 And um, we pray for everybody in the world today. It's a tough time we're going through right now. And we just got to try to keep positive.
1: Yep, absolutely. Well, thank you guys and uh, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.
2: Love y'all.